I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I did kind of imagine maybe that there was a pattern, you know, a reason why every marriage fails. A joke about how I was like looking for the divorce gene in my family. And, you know, there was some secret, there's like this little code in our DNA that's off and like we hit a point in every relationship and it switch flips and and suddenly we can't do it anymore. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Many of the dating and relationship rules we're talking about this season come from society, from culture, passed down over generations. Today's story is about breaking a different kind of rule. This rule, it's more of a pattern, a family pattern that also goes back generations. Ian Koss is a podcast producer, sound artist, and musician. He's worked on many stories about other people. But for his latest project, Ian trained his microphone on something far more personal— He wanted to understand a puzzling thing about his family. Why have so many of them gotten divorced? And could he avoid the same fate? The result is a podcast Ian produced called Forever is a Long Time. Here's a bit of the trailer. Oh, God, marriage really doesn't mean a thing to me. He didn't find me attractive. Like that really, it got to me after a while. She picked up the phone and said, that's it, I'm going to call the cops. We, we, we lost respect for each other. Yeah, I mean, it seems like kind of a red flag in hindsight. Doesn't it? But we stayed married for 30-something years. They did a lot of stuff to fuck Forever up. is a Long Time is a meditation on love, commitment, family, and what we inherit. It's a story that resonates with people like me, who grew up shuttling between the houses of divorced parents. We'll get deeper into Ian's story a little later in the episode. But before we do that, I want to take a slight detour. Throughout this season, I'll be talking to some smart people about the rules and relationship tropes we're expected to follow. One of those smart people is Christina Tucker. She's a writer and the host of a queer dating podcast called, wait, is this a date? Christina and I also co-write a monthly column for the Boston Globe on self-help books. We found that many of these books are overly prescriptive, unless you fit one particular mold. 
A fun thing about being a gigantic homosexual is that all of the rules that we have, like, culturally for relationships are so specifically geared towards heterosexual relationships. Like, they're always with this idea of, like, you are a woman trying to get a man. And in queer dating, that's usually not a problem. Another thing that I always think about when I think about gay dating versus, you know, heterosexual dating is this idea of, like, community really factors into dates in the queer community in a way that I didn't really think about when I was, you know, just dating whatever cis man I found on Tinder. But like the idea that you could go on a date and like borrow a friend's car because you're going on a picnic or like a friend will make some food for you. It's like a very commune-esque approach to dating. You're going to have to get pretty comfortable with dating your friend's exes because it's just going to happen and there's really no getting around it in a way that I feel like that's like one of those rules, you know, in straight society. It's like, oh, I would never date a friend's ex. And oh boy, let me tell you, baby queers, you're going to date a friend's ex or two. I asked Christina, is there even such a thing as a universal rule when it comes to looking for love? While, you know, all of people are people and we can all have similarities and differences within that, I think trying to apply some sort of universal framework to dating without knowing what the other person is bringing to the table is not always, but oftentimes going to be a fool's errand because you don't know how people are experiencing your overtures, even my overtures of friendship that I thought were just regular friendship. Sometimes they are seen as flirting and I'm like, well, wait, what am I doing wrong? It makes it very challenging to assume that there is a a universal rules framework that we can apply to our relationships with people. Do you think this is worse right now because we're all weird? Yeah, yeah, uh, 100%. Though I am not a huge toucher, I used to be able to hug my friends without being like, why are you coming at me in this manner? And I know for me, especially like thinking around okay, I've built this like very specific routine for all of my days now because I need to have a routine to live in this, you know, last year and a half of being in my house. And now the idea of like breaking out of that routine is like, ooh, ooh, I don't know if I'm ready for any any of that. This has been a tough year. We all might be a little bit loony right now. You are very wise in your 32 years of age. I mean, just just the seniority of, of being in your 30s. So if you are... Talking to a younger person and you were saying to them, please, you're going to get bombarded by a lot of messages and rules in life. What are some tips you would give them to sort of wade through the bullshit? I would tell them that it's fine to not date, to be a younger person who is not dating. I think it's a little strange how much um, emphasis we put on like relationships we had when we were like in high school and even younger. I think there is definitely a tendency. And I know I felt this way as someone who didn't date a lot in high school that like uh, there was something wrong with me. But like when you are that age, you are so just learning who you are as a person. And I think it's very fine to want to explore that by yourself and not necessarily be in some sort of partnership with another person. You have a lot of life to live. I would also say if you are a person who is younger and dating that like just because a relationship ends does not mean that the relationship was a failure yes yes i think 
there is a large tendency to be like, well, that I wasn't in this relationship forever, thus it was bad, thus everything that I experienced in it was worthless and useless and I didn't get anything out of that. But like, no, you had an experience where you learned something about yourself. You learned either that there was a part of this relationship or a part of being with this person that you either weren't willing to compromise on or didn't want to deal with. And like, that's how you grow and learn to be better in relationships. Totally. I hate when people say their marriage failed. Like, it, especially when people have been together for like 15, 20, 30 years, and it's like, it it ended, but that, right. you know, it's a, it's a pretty... That's a good chunk of time to get out of a relationship Yeah, and probably learned a lot. Um, mm-hmm. One of the rules I'm kind of getting out of what you're saying is there are many ways to be, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that when I was in my 30s, specifically, a little less in my 20s, what seemed to transcend everyone's experience, but mostly women, I would say, was this fear or anxiety about, am I doing it right, right? Look, as as friends made decisions, as friends decided to remain single and prioritize one thing or be in a relationship and prioritize another thing or prioritize both things or children, there was a feeling of, well, what happens to me? There's no one who feels at every moment like they're nailing it and that they've made all of the right choices and that there's like no reason to panic. I think we're all just trying to find our way in the world. And that can look like a lot of different things based on, you know, if you're in a couple, if you're not in a couple, if you're dating, if you're not dating. But I think it is kind of, at least for me, it's comforting to think like everybody's kind of struggling with this no matter where they are. Thank you, Christina, so much for your wisdom and and lack of rules. Yeah, let's go easy breezy. Let's be gentle on ourselves. I want to return now to the story of Ian Koss and his quest to understand the legacy of divorce in his family. And when I say legacy of divorce, I'm not exaggerating it has become quite the norm among his relatives. Let me tell you all the divorces that I know of. My great-grandparents divorced in the 1950s in Germany. My grandparents divorced in the 1960s. They were living in New York. Then my parents divorced. On my dad's side, my father's brother divorced twice. And then on my mother's side... Her only uncle divorced, and then her three siblings all divorced. So how many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight? It's like you definitely more than the 50% average or whatever, however it stands. Yeah, we're batting well below 500 on marriage. Totally. My family does not come anywhere close to this. But Ian and I do share the experience of watching our parents' marriage fall apart. I asked him to tell me his backstory. So I grew up in a bunch of small towns in western Massachusetts, so about two hours west of Boston. We moved around a bunch. Both my parents worked kind of funny jobs. My mom was a paramedic on the local ambulance, so she would be working this weird, like, 12-hour shifts some days and then not some days. My dad was self-employed as a farrier, which is the person who puts shoes on horses. I spent a lot of time as a kid hanging around with both my parents where they worked. I would hang out at the, the ambulance. 
dispatch office sometimes when she was there, and I would go and tag along with my dad when he was working on horses. Basically, as long as I can remember, my parents were separated. They divorced when I was very young, and I don't have a lot of memories of it. So I was just one of those kids who had two houses. It felt like a big deal the first time I was old enough that I could ride a bicycle between my parents' two houses. They're about 10 miles apart. It felt like a real moment of independence in my life that I could choose. Like, oh, I, I want to go up and like hang out at my mom's house. I'm going to bike up there. So my parents split probably when I was around the same age and I am, I was born in 77, so I'm a bit older. But it's such an interesting thing because like the split, I just feel like for me, I sort of knew it was on its way clearly. But one thing I remember feeling at the time was sadness, but a little bit of relief because I felt like this was not a pair, even at that age, that needed to be living in the same house and that maybe by separating I was going to get a better a better version of these certainly a better version of my mother who I think was very anxious at the, toward the end of the marriage like what do you remember of thinking about your parents moods and how you access them I mean do you have memories at that from that age of oh this feels better or worse or different I think that feeling you're describing of relief and wow these people are really their best selves when they're not together that's a realization I came to later, you know, as I saw them date other people and create their own homes. I don't think I had that awareness at the time. I think I was a bit of like a head in the clouds kind of kid. And actually, one of the interesting things about recording all these interviews with my family and sharing them with my family and talking about them with my family is getting different perspectives on it. Even the moment when my parents told us that they were getting divorced, I have no memory of that. Ian says his brother Sebastian, who's less than two years older, does remember that. Just like he remembers lots of things that Ian does not. Like the police coming to their house after a fight and the restraining order that followed. One of the reasons why my parents' divorce was so difficult for my father is that my father was exactly the same age that I was when his parents split up. And his parents' divorce was really messy, really fraught, drawn-out, ugly process that I think was very traumatizing for him. He very much saw himself in me in the moment, you know, when he was going through his own divorce and felt very, yeah, he, he was really troubled by that. By the time his parents split in 1996, Ian says... Divorce has become culturally accepted enough and common enough that he doesn't feel like a total outlier. That idea that people go their separate ways, they find new partners. Yeah, I think it was normalized to an extent. And there are obviously parts of it that are hard. When I look at photos of my parents together and of my family together when you're very small, like I still feel a little sadness that I didn't have that, that we didn't have that time together throughout my childhood and throughout my life. But at the same time, I do think that the idea of divorce and the idea of my parents making their own lives for themselves, it felt okay. So Ian goes off to college. When he thinks about his own future, he's not sure marriage is part of it. But then he notices this girl who lives in the same dorm. Her name is Kelsey. We were friends for about a year. 
we got to know each other. I think we were both interested, but both a little reticent. And about a year after we first met, it was like a beautiful fall day. And I think one of us had an idea to go apple picking. We invited a bunch of our friends like, oh, maybe we could all go apple picking. And everybody else was like, no, 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 you go. So it ended up being just the two of us. And so we inadvertently went on our first date because some other friends of ours tactfully declined to join us. Ian and Kelsey start dating. They stay together through the rest of college. It turns out they're a pretty good match. We had our bumps or struggles as any couple does. But we also, I mean, we were, we were compatible. We've always had a really strong sort of like intellectual compatibility. We talk a lot. We, you know, we share a lot of ideas and thoughts. But we had a feeling after college that like maybe this isn't the best indication yet of whether this will actually last out in the real world. You know, it felt like we'd worked as a couple in this one particular environment. And so we actually, after college, we ended up living apart for a year. Ian gets a scholarship to study music in Indonesia. Kelsey gets a job as a lab tech in a neuroscience laboratory in Tokyo. From 2011 into 2012, they only see each other twice. This time apart clarifies things. They want to be with each other. And it was after that that we decided, okay, let's move in together. And that was in some ways a confirmation or an affirmation that this wasn't just a convenient relationship that we had while in college, but it was actually something that we wanted to build on and a person we wanted to build our life around. Ian and Kelsey spend a year together in Japan before returning to the U.S. in 2013. We moved to Boston and we rented an apartment together. It was the first time that we both had our names on the lease and we bought a bed together. For some reason, that felt symbolically very important. It was the biggest thing we'd ever bought together. And did you like split it? Because this has come up on this has come up on the podcast before about who pays for furniture. So you were like you both owned the same thing. Yes, it was our first like joint item, you know, that, wow, if we break up, we're going to have to now deal with the bed. You just get a big chainsaw and then right down, right down the middle. (laughs) Exactly. I think in moving back and in starting to sort of like accumulate a life together and build a life together, that question of whether we were really in this for the long haul became important. And I think for her, it came from a place of simply wanting to know, wanting to know, like, can I make, can we make five, 10 year plans together? Can I, you know, invest energy and time in this relationship and feel secure and confident that we both want this to last a lifetime? But not only does Ian have these past family divorces in the back of his mind, the divorces just keep coming. Most of my aunts and uncles divorced when I was in my 20s. So it's sort of like at the same, in the same time period when I was considering the idea of a lifetime commitment and being partners with this person, all these, the sort of last standing examples of partnerships that lasted were falling apart in my family. And so I think the timing of those things gave me a lot of pause. Ian's quest to understand the family business and how it might shape his own romantic relationship continues after this short break. 
Okay, we're back. So Ian and Kelsey decide to take their time. They have deep discussions about marriage and what it means, and whether they even want to take that step. They think, maybe we should just keep dating and leave it at that. I should note here that Kelsey's family is very different from Ian's. Her parents and grandparents have strong marriages. It felt like something out of a Norman Rockwell painting or something. It's like everybody around the table and like the matriarch and like every generation and these like intact marriages and children. And it's like, wow, this is like, this is, this is like a real family. (laughs) This is partly why Kelsey decides, okay, I'm ready for us to do this. Let's have a wedding. Let's go for it. For us, and I think in particular for my wife, it was about intention and about, you know, making explicit our intent to make this a lifetime relationship. And at first, my reaction was, well, do we really need a piece of paper to do that? Uh, Do we really need a caterer to do that? I think the ritual of it, the public nature of it, the the stating these vows in public, it, it felt important to her. And... I don't want to I don't want to give the impression that I was sort of like dragged into a kicking and screaming, but I did have to come around to the idea because marriage in my family didn't really signify that much. And it didn't seem like a guarantee of anything. There's so many ways to make this commitment. And can you talk about how you how publicly you made it and how that felt knowing the statistics in your own family and imagining, I don't know, later in my more recently in my life, I should say, I revisited a photo after my mom died of her on her wedding day to my dad. And literally, what's that emoji with like the straight line across where like my mom is like not quite smiling. She has that sort of tense smile of like, this might not be it, right? Even on that day, she looks gorgeous and she still has the thought bubble of like, hopefully, question mark. And it it just reminds me that for most divorced couples, there is a day where they might be making that face or a face of this is going to last forever. Or So, like, I, I imagine that some of this played into how you decided to celebrate and what you thought about the ceremony of it all. Yeah. it's I love that you make that distinction between marriage and wedding because my wife and I actually had opposite feelings on this. She wanted to get married and didn't really want to have a wedding. I was kind of meh on marriage, but I wanted to have a wedding. So we kind of met in the middle on that. It's like, okay, if we're going to get married, I do want to have a wedding. So in 2015, Ian and Kelsey bring 60 people together in her parents' backyard in Maryland. It's a radiant fall day. Kelsey wears an orange wedding dress she's made herself with Ian in a matching tie. A mutual friend officiates. When I think about my wedding day, it's like maybe the one day of my life where like, I bring together the most people who are really important to me in one place and one time. The fact that they're all there bearing witness and offering their support, that meant a lot. Even though those people have made their own mistakes, you know, especially on my side of the family. The fact that having learned what they've learned, they wanted to support our marriage and they believe in us. That that means something. Stating those intentions publicly, getting, you know, a certificate of something, does it change the way it feels in life with her? One of the things I noticed is like a sort of like ease around long term, about just like talking long term. When we were just dating, you know, we might say something like, oh, it'd be cool. I'd love to live in this place or I might try and like get this, you know, go to this 
program or and the future always has this sort of like tentative nature to it like oh well like maybe i guess we'll see the ability to just look out ahead at life and be like maybe we could like get a dog or like buy a house in like four years once we've saved up enough money and you know the ability to just do that with the the knowledge and ease of oh yeah we're in this together now that was probably the most immediate difference at some point this impulse to understand the broken relationships in his family enters ian's consciousness it first manifests as music composition and songwriting are a, a bit of like uh, an emotional bellwether for me a way that things bubble up from the subconscious things that i'm interested in things that i'm stewing about sometimes come out first in that form when we were first together i feel like i wrote a lot of love songs like most love stricken songsters do but then in the years after it, the the tone kind of started to change you know and the things i was thinking about and the questions i was preoccupied with started to change this impulse to interrogate the causes and meaning of divorce grows stronger as Ian starts to see his friends split up too. So I did a graduate program and I'd been out of it for maybe a year. And I went to some like little department reception to sort of catch up with folks who I hadn't seen in a little while. And I was like, oh, was, you know, I was talking to one of my colleagues. It's like, oh, so great to see you. Like, oh, we should get together sometime, you know. And uh, she's like, yeah, we're separating. And it was one of those moments that really caught me off guard. And I'm sure I mumbled something totally incoherent, unhelpful, and then just sort of wandered off. Even having this track record of divorce in my family, I had a bit of a sense that some of those marriages probably shouldn't have ever happened and that there's probably some flawed decision making that went into them. But I did kind of feel like, you know, when I looked around at me and my peers, like that we were doing it better, that we had a better handle on this thing called marriage. We were taking our time. We were allowing each other to be our own people. We were more like emotionally open. And so I think that shook me a little bit to start to think about, well, what makes me think that I can do better than my parents or my ancestors? What makes me think that I can suddenly just make this commitment and honor it for a lifetime when none of them could? This is why Ian decides to make a podcast. He wants to get to the bottom of all of these divorces and avoid the same fate. So he sets out to interview family members, review old documents and letters, and reflect on what actually led to the demise of all these marriages. But if I'm your wife and I'm like hearing, oh, my husband's like, what I really want to do is like delve into the topic of divorce and why and like, why would anybody stay like I might be a little bit put off by your interest in truly analyzing this. I didn't tell her right away. I think I interviewed my grandmother first. That, that was like my little uh, my little experiment to see if mm, are there stories here that I really want to delve into and explore. And then at some point after that, I told her that I was kind of dabbling in this project where I was going to, I wanted to interview everyone in my family about their divorces. And to her credit, I think she understood that this isn't my way of getting divorced. This is my way of not getting divorced. Like, this isn't me talking myself into, okay, 
I, I can't do this. I need to, you know, head for the exits. But it's really my way of grappling with the commitment I've made and how to stick with it. The final product, Forever is a Long Time, is a five-episode miniseries that explores all these big themes by dwelling on specific relationships in Ian's family. He weaves deep conversations with his wife throughout, and he incorporates some of the songs he wrote. Last night I ran into an old friend It took a turn when she said, hey we should have you two over for dinner. That's when I told her that you and I were separating. After a pause, she said something polite. I apologized for laying it all on her that night. Then we agreed to let our conversation drift apart. In having these hard conversations with relatives, Ian says, he stumbled onto some surprises. Marriages he's always assumed were terrible actually had moments of tenderness and adventure and beautiful courtship. And then marriages that seemed so rosy on the outside actually looked nothing like that behind closed doors. The marriage of his uncle Paul, for example. He and his wife were married for over 30 years. My entire, you know, life, basically... They had this beautiful home, and she was always very sort of like quiet but supportive. He seemed supportive of her. Uh, It just felt very kind of like calm and peaceful. And then in talking to him, I realized that they had been like fighting bitterly for decades. Wow. They had been to see a marriage counselor in the early years of their marriage, and that counselor had told them that they should get a divorce because they had these irreconcilable differences. You'll remember that earlier in the episode, Christina Tucker and I talked about not attaching the word failure to relationships that end. This is something that Ian thought a lot about during the course of his project. I did start out with that kind of normative idea of like a divorce is a marriage that failed and I don't want my marriage to fail. And that's what I'm trying to avoid. The last interview I did was with one of my mother's sisters who She divorced before I was even born. I never, like when I did this interview, I didn't even know the name of her one's husband. She was in this weird relationship. It was totally unhealthy. She divorced and she just never looked back. She never married again. She's thrived in all kinds of different ways. And she is just the person I know today. And she would not be that person. She would not have lived the life she's lived had she, you know, stayed in that marriage. Ian found it notable that it was often the women who initiated the divorces. I've definitely come around to, in hearing all these stories, feeling like the divorce is not the failure. The divorce was the rectification or the course correction. And one that takes a lot of bravery because it does still bear a lot of stigma and it's very costly and and difficult. And so in a, in a weird way, I'm also like proud that so many members of my family had the wherewithal and the strength to to take their lives into their own hands in that way. Before he released the podcast publicly, Ian shared it widely within his family. The people he interviewed, the children of some of those divorced couples, even some ex-spouses he did not talk to. His parents also heard the first episode on the radio recently when it aired on the program Snap Judgment. My mom told me she texted my dad right afterwards, and they're like, we did okay. We did okay. Oh, my God. How did that make you feel? No, I just said, like, the therapy. How did that make you feel? My parents have 
slowly over time developed more of like a friend friendly relationship and i think it took some time for the the wounds to heal but it makes me happy because they're both brilliant interesting quirky people who made me who i am and it's nice to see that they can still connect with each other can you give us a hint about the way in which you felt about your marriage after ending this project and and sort of looking at what you chose to be in and like did it make you feel more positive about the institution did you take something home with you For my own marriage, I left this project feeling really heartened and encouraged. But it was born out of a genuine anxiety and kind of searching around this question, an anxiety that however much I loved my partner and however much I felt consciously and logically that this was a good thing for my life, that that ultimately maybe I wouldn't be able to hold on to that commitment. It's something that a lot of people just kind of arrive at, you know, stumble into without a, a whole lot of intentionality or thought or care necessarily. And my relatives were very open about this, that they had doubts even, you know, when and before they got married. My grandmother tells this bizarre story of sitting in a park in Thompson Square Park in Manhattan and my grandfather proposing to her and her being like, yeah. I'll give it a shot. We can always get divorced. It's not that Ian couldn't see himself in any of this family lore. In fact, he could clearly see, in exploring his parents' marriage, how he shares his father's allergy to conflict and confrontation. Hearing those stories, being able to recognize, to just see myself reflected in their stories, and then see how those stories play out over time, I think is a good little reminder for me, that we can't learn from the ways of our ancestors. And not that we can't change ourselves that much. Like, I'm still the same person, you know, I'm, I'm still going to have those same instincts and habits and tendencies. But just being aware, I think, can, uh, can do some good. All those circumstances and detail really made me feel like, okay, maybe, maybe we are actually off to a pretty good start. And maybe I'm on a different kind of track than most of these marriages. And I do feel, whatever our flaws, whatever challenges we face ahead, I do feel like we honestly got married because we love each other and we wanted to be together. So nice. Thank you, Ian, so much for sharing this story. Thank you so much. What you can find Ian's podcast, Forever is a Long Time, wherever you get your podcasts. Stick around after the credits to hear the full trailer. I should also note, in full disclosure, that Ian is a producer at PRX, which distributes this podcast. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith does our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGorry and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. The outro track this week is one of Ian's songs. It's called What If. Remember, Love Letters is also an advice column. Send your questions and problems to loveletters at boston.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're online at loveletters.show. I'm Meredith Goldstein. 
Thanks for listening. Here's the full trailer for Forever is a Long Time. Seven years ago, I asked my partner Kelsey if she would marry me. I did that despite the fact that every living member of my family who had ever been married had also gotten divorced. My parents, all my aunts and uncles on both sides, my only living great-uncle, my only living grandparent, not to mention some of my great-grandparents, all had been married and all had been divorced, some of them twice. It's certainly not an encouraging track record. And the deeper I got into my own marriage, the more questions I had about the examples I had grown up with and my own capacity for commitment. So I started asking. Hello. Hey, Ian. I talked to every one of those relatives. Hey there, how you doing? Hello, how are you? Oh, hi, Ian. Hi, how are you? About their marriages. They really thought I would be with him for the rest of my life. And their divorces. I was sort of expecting it to be more fulfilling. The stories they told were at once more bizarre. The whole courtroom, it was like a reverse wedding. And also more relatable, more familiar than I had ever imagined. There was so much compensating, really on both sides, for the other person not being the person that you really wanted them to be. Familiar enough that I can only hope that by asking and listening, I won't have to repeat those stories myself. Oh, God, marriage really doesn't mean a thing to me. He didn't find me attractive. Like, that really, it got to me after a while. She picked up the phone and said, that's it, I'm going to call the cops. We, we lost respect for each other. Yeah, I mean, it seems like kind of a red flag in hindsight. Doesn't it? But we stayed married for 30-something years. They did a lot of stuff to fuck you up, but you also get gifts. I didn't want to pass that legacy on to my kids. He was really, really afraid of being his dad. So I'd be perfectly happy to be that woman at the end of the street with 15 cats. I wouldn't have any issues with that at all. You sort of start to feel like you're good and sufficient reasons. Maybe they really weren't so good and sufficient for who you actually become. My name is Ian Koss. The show is called Forever is a Long Time. It's a five-part series of conversations and also songs about divorce, but really about the meaning of lifetime commitment and the patterns of behavior that we all inherit from our families, whether we realize it or not. The full series drops in June, wherever you listen to podcasts.